0: and I just heard this huge like metallic clang like inside my head and it was almost like I was stood next to like a church bell and someone had just got a sledgehammer and hit this bell and it just dung and I was like, what was that?
1: Hello and welcome to this World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Deb Swan, an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine and pre-hospital emergency medicine, expedition medic and medic for the UK international search and rescue team. Today, I'm joined by Justin Oliver-Davis. Justin is a retired soldier, amputee and adaptive athlete and mountaineer. In 2011, when Justin was serving in Afghanistan, he stood on an improvised explosive device resulting in the loss of both lower legs. Justin's story from that life-changing day to a recent valiant return from conquering Merripeek in Nepal is inspiring and I am really excited to be speaking to him today. Welcome Justin, thank you so much for taking the time uh, out today to, to speak with us.
0: Good morning, Deb. Thanks very much for having me. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here now, uh, oh, having a chat with you. So fantastic,
1: fantastic. And I want to start really at at the beginning of this quite inspiring journey. Can you take us back to Afghanistan? What uh, who you were serving with? What you were tasked to do, and um, and the events leading up to to your uh, eventful day?
0: Sure. Uh, yeah. So. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, firstly, so hello everyone and thanks for having me, thanks for listening. Um, I was serving with two rifles uh, back in 2011 and we on this particular day we were acting as a QRF patrol and that is simply a quick reaction force patrol. Um, and this particular example, um, there were a number of sort of contacts going on throughout the day, uh, close to our checkpoint. And you could you could kind of hear this stuff sort of kicking off in the distance. And we were, you know, we were stood up and stood down and all day long. And all that means is that we were preparing to go out and, and support. And then we were told, no, it's okay, don't worry about it, just chill for a bit. So we were continuously going through that process throughout the day a good number of times, like stood two, stood down, stood two, stood down. And finally, it, I, I can't remember the specific time, but I think it's like mid-afternoon, we heard this like volley of gunfire going off and like, you know, in, in the distance, not, not, not too far away, maybe a kilometre away, maybe a little bit less um, within our area of operation. Uh, Certainly, and um, yeah, big volley of gunfire, explosions, blah blah blah. And um, they came over the radio that uh, basically another group of soldiers had been had been ambushed. Um, They'd strayed into our AO and into Taliban territory, and and the Taliban had basically taken advantage of that and just unleashed hell on them. uh, uh, Effectively, so it was it was our role then to try and get out and support them. they they were being pinned down and under quite intense um and heavy fire and 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 uh, accurate fire so um we were tasked to go out and assist and there were only three of us that were trained to uh it, as a search kind of um task i suppose so um to have the capability of searching we had to go and do a course a three-week course down in kent um and then so the three of us uh, throughout the platoon or throughout the multiple or the group of soldiers, um, I was the closest one to the search equipment at the time when all this gunfire was going off and we got the call to go. So I just picked up the search equipment and, and that was me leading the patrol out. And, you know, we because there were three of us, we'd usually rotate between the three of us who would do, you know, the front man doing the searching and who would do the cover man, which is the person behind the searching uh, guy at the front. And you would just, if you were searching, you'd be searching for IDs. If you were the cover man, you'd literally be stood behind very close, making sure that any enemy popped out, you could be there to cover the search man. So I pick up the search equipment and we're all kind of like, buzzing because it's like you know we're going we're actually going out now this is a job we're going to get it done um so everyone's like high energy super focused like the adrenaline is like it's just flowing through everyone so everyone's like geared up ready to rock so we leave our checkpoint um and the checkpoint is just a, a manned position along a route and it just secures the route so that people can't come in and out um so we leave our checkpoint and we head down towards this gunfire and as we're sort of getting closer and closer we're crossing crossing irrigation ditches we're going you know through you know high walled areas low walled areas There's you know trees there's vegetation some of it's very green some of it's very sparse so you're constantly like You know like checking the surroundings looking at the ground for any ground sign for 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 devices laid in the ground you're looking in the trees for any devices like set in the trees so your senses are just like super high alert all the time and you just your adrenaline is just burning through your body so we're moving through this area through the trees through the fields and gradually getting closer and closer to the gunfire you can hear it getting closer you start to see smoke rising you know out of the irrigation ditches where people are engaging the enemy and everything's going on and i remember just like searching through the irrigation ditches because some of them had water in some of them didn't and you had to be aware of like command wires running through the irrigation ditches which is just a wire running underneath the water um so it's so it's invisible to the naked eye um running to a device could be right next to you so you're checking for these wires in ditches you're checking in the trees for devices you're just checking everything in case you're being lured into like you know another secondary ambush or maybe like funneled into an area where there's further ieds um, it, it later transpired that this was probably happening to us um or for whatever reason um there was a huge belt of ieds in the area where we were patrolling through and um yeah just making our way through and i came up one side of this irrigation ditch and i took a couple of paces and i just heard this huge like metallic clang like inside my head and it was almost like i was stood next to like a church bell and someone had just got a sledgehammer and hit this bell and it just and i was like what was that you know what the hell was that and at this point i'm lying on the floor on my back so it's just like and it's taken a few seconds for my brain to catch up to what's happened. And I'm like, "What oh, what is that? And it's like, you know, was that improvised explosive device? Was it rocket propelled grenade? Was it gunshot? You know, am I even awake? Am I dreaming? You know, what is, is this reality? What's happening? And then, you know, maybe five, ten seconds catch up. And I'm like, wow, that is like I've been hit. You know, something's, something's seriously wrong. So I'm lying on my back. There's dust everywhere um, at my I can barely sort of see cause dust and dirt is all just in my face and debris and lots of like mud and stuff in my mouth All the dust is collecting. And you can just hear people shouting and, you know, very muffled because my ears are just one ear is perforated. The other one's damaged quite badly. So everything's like almost like I'm wearing ear defense when I'm, when I'm not, you know, so it's like this huge explosion and I'm, I'm almost deaf. And I can just kind of see smoke and everything around me while I'm led on the floor. And I'm looking up and my hand is kind of in my vision and I can see my hand is like really badly damaged. And I'm like, oh no, I've been hit. I've definitely been blown up. But it's like working out how that happened. So all these thoughts are running through my head about, you know, what if I, did I make a mistake? Did I get shot? Did, you know, what happened? I didn't see anything happen. So, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then, you know, so... Work out I've been blown up. The, the guys get to me on the ground and, you know, it's worth mentioning that, you know, a good friend of mine, Ryan Hone Ginge, uh, his nickname, he, he was the, one of the first guys to me on the ground. In fact, he was the first guy to me on the ground and he had total disregard for his own safety um, and, you know, ran from almost the middle of the patrol right up to the front um, across the irrigation ditch knowing that, you know, there was IEDs in the ground. He just he just ran up to me and, and started issuing sort of life-saving support um, and without that that action of which of which he was commended for um, you know I may not have actually been there much longer to be honest so without that immediate you know those skills and drills coming just 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 so rapid and so quick you know it wasn't the first time he's done it he's done it on previous uh, deployments as well so the guy's a bit of a legend Um mm. You know, and without that immediate support, I don't know if I'd be here now. Um, and also, you know, the rest of the guys and girls on the ground as well, that helped me. Um, absolutely fantastic, because, you know, although people just say, and we were just saying, we're just doing our job, it's still, you're still putting your own, your own life in your hands, yeah. seeing one of your, your mates just get blown up in front of you and you're running into that area. Yeah. Um, and it, it later transpires that there were, there were further IEDs, you know, around us. You know where i got blown up so they could have stood on one kind of any any second um which you know is is it's is a dangerous place it's an extremely dangerous place so um, well, heard. <laughs> yeah so you heard you, <laughs> might, have heard. you might have heard <laughs> so so yeah but you know and the guy the guy's sorting me out on the ground it, you know it's about 25 minutes until the the medical emergency response uh chinook can get to us so um you know within those sort of 25 minutes every single possibility and thought is running through your mind you know i got got issued a bit of morphine which is fine um kind of settled it down a bit and calmed me down but you know when the medic came to me and she was like said on the on the radio basically we've got a double amputee i was like oh man you know because i didn't really understand at that point i was kind of led on my back you know and the guys Mm. were sorting my legs out and Mm. sorting my hand out but I didn't necessarily have a chance to sit up and actually see, you know, properly understand, yeah. you know, when, when she actually, you know, cause I, I saw my legs and I was like, well, one is definitely gone because the right leg I stood on it with, and that was completely evaporated, you know, just, just below the knee. So, it's, you know, it's almost like, you can see the sort of the, the fragmented bone like sticking out and it's like the flesh is just burnt and just torn. And my left, my left leg was like sort of, you know, halfway up the shin, that was just sort of cut, but it was like it was like hanging. Mm. So it was only maybe connected with a bit of skin and maybe some ligament and maybe some muscle and some flesh. But it was certainly in a bad way. Mm. But when the medic got to me and she kind of confirmed that I was a double amputee at that point, I was like, oh man. You know, that was kind of like the moment that my life changed completely. And um probably one of the, the hardest moments I think of my life then because it was understanding then that my life is going to be a completely different journey there was no way that i was going to fulfill my dream to you know continue soldiering and then progress in that field and and, and have a longer career mm-hmm. um so your life just my life got turned upside down at that moment so yeah lying on the floor for about 25 minutes kind of the guys just like sorting me out and um, um firing warning shots at people that are sort of moving up to our position because you know as soon as you know the taliban here that an id has gone off they've got spotters in the area so they'll know that that, that that someone's been injured and something's happening and they know then that a, a chopper is going to come in and try and get this casualty out so yeah. they're going to move into the area and they're going to try and take the chopper out as well yeah you know so if they can get a whole mer- a medical emergency response team and a, and a casualty and everyone else that's on that 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 Chinook, if they can take it out of the sky, that's a huge win for them. Mm. So they're going to step up their advances towards that position. And that's what they were doing. Um, and all this time, this ambush is still going on. You know, so the guys are still pinned down over there. And I'm just led there thinking, you know, these guys are all pinned down in this contact. And because I've got blown up now, I don't know what's going to, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to these guys because we're meant to be going out and like kind of assisting and saving them from this incident. So you've got all this stuff sort of running through your mind, thinking, you know, I'm letting these guys down, letting the team down now. And now they've got to switch, completely switch the objective of the mission from, you know, advancing down towards a contact and probably cutting the Taliban off and ambushing them to now extracting one of their own out of the area. So uh, the the task and the, and everything and the focus just completely switched. So, I've got, to, you know, you've got to say, um, you've got to give credit, I think, to the training that we experienced over the years before that. And everyone's ex- prior experience going on on different tours and having us, you know, senior commanders there with us that are, that are just so much more experienced than the younger guys. Mm. And, you know, if we didn't have those people there, you know, I definitely wouldn't be here now. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, there's no yeah. no two ways about it at all. Mm. So, that was, so that was that. And, you know got off the ground um got on the back of the on the back of the mert and then on the chinook they laid me out stripped all my clothes off going through all the correct procedures and then, you all know the technical term for this but i can't remember it but when they put a line in through your sternum what's yeah. that one
1: so they the basically put one. A, yeah yeah yeah, intra- yeah yeah intraosseous um uh needle so yeah. um if you're yeah, i suppose if your your medic on the ground couldn't get IV intravenous access, then it's definitely a, a, a military, a, a very military way of of getting access. Is is putting is putting the, in the sternum, and I think it comes from, um, uh, you know, from the experiences in Afghanistan with the, with the IEDs. And if you've got mm. a double triple amputee, your chances of of getting access are, are, are being reduced. So actually, you've got a nice thin bit of bone (laughs) in your chest that you can get I didn't feel thin I tell you when
0: they put it in
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that you need a bit of a a push behind it to to actually yeah yeah, you do I
0: thought I was imagining it it, but when
1: I is the last thing I remember I remember looking up at
0: this guy and he just put he just put his hands on my chest and I just felt him just go punch this thing through and that was the last thing I remember because I was like it was almost like it winded me because I was like sharp intake of breath and yeah. then I remember trying to grab him and that was the last thing I remember, then I went to sleep um, yeah. and, then woke, and then woke up in, in the UK, so in the mm. Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Mm. Um, so all, all, all a fairly traumatic uh, couple of days in that regard. Um, yeah. so <laughs> I would say slightly, traumatic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so, so that's kind of the incident that was what I was involved in. Um, and then it is just, you know, then it was the fight for sort of independence, then and the beginning of my recovery phases, mm. um, which mm. began first at the, at the Queen Elizabeth and then, and then continued at Headley Court down in Surrey.
1: Before we move on to the, um, the kind of immediate post-injury phase and rehab phase from going back to the 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 incident you 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 see you were quite lucid throughout that entire time and you've got you seem to have quite vivid recall of what Mm. you were hearing what Mm. you're experiencing and what you were seeing you said it was about 25 minutes did it before the murder came did it feel like 25 minutes did it feel like 25 hours or did it go in a go in a flash
0: I felt like hours did it like hours yeah for like Mm -hmm. hours you know because you're you've gone from a position of like leading a patrol knowing that you are going to be engaging the enemy in a matter of minutes you know so knowing full well that you're going to walk into the enemy basically because that's what we're there to do so you've gone from that position like in your mind you this is the years of training everything have built up to this minute it you know it's like this is the real this is the real job that we're going to do this is this is why i'm here mm-hmm. this is everything that i've meant to be doing i just i felt like this was my kind of calling this was what, exactly what i was meant to be at this time in my life mm-hmm. so it was like I mean, if, this is this is it this is what I'm here to do so let's do it you know and you've gone from that position to then being incapacitated and having the whole team then switch focus and then looking after you so you're like you know as the guy that's leading the patrol you're trusted to have good enough skills awareness and communication and tactics and all soldiering capabilities you know to do that job it's a very serious position and you know, it wouldn't, not everyone wants to do it. It, it, it You're at the front of the patrol at any minute, you know, anything can happen. Someone could jump out and, and just engage you mm. or you can stand on something, you know. And I'm not saying it's you're the only guy that's going to get shot or the only guy that's going to get blown up. But when you're moving in single file towards the enemy position, there's a good chance that you're going to get the first first, mm. you know, of fire, you know. So mm. or you're going to be targeted first because you're the search guy. So, you know for me that position was 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 just everything because it was like all the re- you had all the responsibility you had to communicate back you know there was it was just it, it encompassed everything i wanted at that time in my life and um it it's just in it extremely challenging to then go into a position where you're then being looked after by the whole team um but yeah i can remember i can remember you know most things about that And it Mm. just and it felt like it felt like such a long time being led on the floor because, you know, as soon as someone tells you effectively your life is no longer the same, that Mm. there's no chance of your mind calming in that moment. So you're just kind of going, well, you know, am I actually going to get out of it? Am I actually going to survive? What happens, you Mm. know, the longer we're led here, the more chance the Taliban are going to regroup. They're going to push up to our position and they're going to try and, you know, increase the damage that they've already caused. So. All of that's running through your mind. Are you thinking, you know, what happens if this, what happens if that, what happens if this, am I even going to get out of this situation? You know, mm. if the Taliban move up in numbers to our position and we can't hold them off, essentially I might get left in this in this place, you know, so you might meet a grisly end as such. Mm. But mm. it's kind of like we all, we all accepted that anyway, I think, mm. you know, if we're there, it's part mm. of it, I think. So, yeah, felt like a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah you alluded to the the training which is uh, is vital for, for for you guys and that would include medical training as well for all of you were you were you all mm-hmm. team medics of, of some yeah, we're of team yeah we're all team
0: medics yeah all team mm. medics yeah and so we all had you... we all had we all had that so... basic we all had that very basic kind of life-saving support golden hour sort of support there and um very very fortunate to have The medic with us she was the combat medic jules julie may absolute legend like Uh you know she is well known amongst you know various different units and battalions because you know she's she's you know medals for gallantry she's done various different um things on operations you know she's highly decorated she's an extremely humble individual and i have so much respect for this for this woman um and um yeah she w- without her on the ground and the guys it, it, there's no way that you know there'd be measured many more casualties and many more statistics for sure but mm. she did a fantastic job in kind of mm. um, her knowledge and experience was just outstanding you know it's almost like we didn't need to be trained because we had this this woman with us you know what i mean she was just yeah. she was incredible yeah. and um it's amazing actually like just a, a slight spin-off from that is that on my 10-year anniversary i did, I did I did the fan dance, which is just, uh, it's like a 23 kilometer route over the Brecons. And I did that and, and invited a few people that were there on the day and she showed up and it had been the first time I'd seen her for a, for a number of years. And it was such an, quite an emotional time and moment to spend with her. So huge amounts of respect for those people. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we had that basic level of, of training, um, and just thankful for, for people that had a higher level of training as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah and it was was it um you was it uh ginge who, who put the tourniquets on or were you able to do your own tourniquets yes. or what, what did you
0: there was no there was no way i was going to do my own tourniquets i mean i've heard i've heard stories of guys you know whipping out tourniquets and sticking them on mm-hmm. themselves and i'm like nice. don't know how you did that man you legends because you know my my hand i'll show you but my the guys and girls won't be able to hear on 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 the audio but i've got a little bit of damage to a couple of fingers missing and some frag to my to my palm and also some um i had a fasciotomy on my forearm there and Mm. also got some blast damage up on my forearm um so my my right hand was kind of incapacitated there was no way i was going to stick that on and i could i couldn't couldn't even really sit up so i was just yeah there was no way that was going to happen So Mm. I was essentially bleeding out and just waiting for someone to save me. So, (laughs) yeah, that was it. And along comes Ginge. (laughs) Along comes Ginge and along comes the other guys. And and they managed to sort me out and get the tourniquets on. And they're not very nice having tourniquets on as well. So very, very painful. painful. Yeah. God, yeah. 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 And obviously you've got to put two on. So (laughs) onto each stump. So, oh, my (laughs) gosh. Yeah.
1: Yeah it's um is there anything in particular that stuck with you without that from the point of injury and your your friends and colleagues doing their immediate care is there anything that that sticks with you about that good or bad or like someone telling you you're going to be okay, you're going to be fine, you know, keeping you informed of what's going on? Or were people just so task-focused, the tourniquets are going on, the morphine's going in, and everything else is, is going on around you?
0: The guys were really, the guys were fantastic. Um, because we had some experienced members in the team, you know, some of the junior commanders and some of the senior commanders were, were extremely experienced. They'd been through some horrendous times on earlier Afghan tours. So, for them, this was kind of like the expected, so it was like they they were already drilled and every, their skills were high level. so as soon as it happened, it was like the the more experienced guys they don't even think they're just like bang straight in, this is what needs to happen, straight on the net on the radio, issue the nine liner you know to inform uh higher h q that you know the casualty in the situation um and as soon as that happens, it's like we'll get the casualties sort of squared away. And then mm. they were keeping me informed all the time, but mm. because of my experience, I you know we were we were our skills were fairly high level because we'd done so many casualty evacuation drills, yeah. you know up to this point. It was almost like every other day in camp before going on tour, we're doing casualty evacuation drills. So it's constant. So it just mm. it was like bang, 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 and it just happened. You know, it mm-hmm. was just training, just kicks in,
1: yeah. and
0: like no one needs to think you know because before we go out on the patrol it's like well who's got the stretcher who's got morphine who's got this who's got that you know have you got this have you got that yes cool so and it's and it'll be like right you've got that you've got that you've got that what actions on sort of point man getting blown up actions on cover man getting blown up so this is all in the briefs before we go on 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 patrols so everyone is is fully aware of their role what they need to do and at what moment in time they need to do it. So yeah, I just, yeah, I just think that our, our, our skill levels were high and um, I think the only improvement maybe is, is for, on my part would be to have easier accessible med kit because when you're like, I think as the time progressed through the Afghan experiences, guys and girls were wearing, um, were having tourniquets kind of in their top left shoulder pockets. And, you know, they weren't always doing that, you know, so it had to progress through time and experience, you know, people kind of becoming a casualty, first responder, getting to them and going, where's your tourniquet? You know, where is it? Where is it? And you're going, well, it's in that pouch, you know, there, which pouch? Left-hand side, which left? My left or your left? So then I think things advance and it's kind of like, right, everyone tourniquet in your top left pocket so it can be seen. If you get blown up, it's there. We know where it is. So I think from my point of view, I probably would have had more accessible tourniquets.
1: That's but I don't really need to know different. that again, do I? No. no.
0: <laughs> it's a one, one-time issue. It's a one-time <laughs> issue. Well, you, you missed a trick there, didn't you?
1: <laughs> but that's and for that really, mistake, you
0: die. That,
1: that's useful for just... Unpicking this, that it's useful. That the the training is vital. Your good communications is vital, and actually having a plan that everyone knows about is really important. And that that can that you can use that in 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 any walk of life, but particularly in in the yeah. medical world or mountain leader, expedition leader. It's it's having that 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 the comms and the plans and the training all all in place, and it works. Mm. And it's mm. yeah from. Lots of things that we have in Civvy Street now. With you know, it's been learnt from um, the the conflict in Afghanistan. So yeah, yeah. Moving on to your repatriation. So you were loaded onto the onto the Mert. Then you don't remember much else from that, and then you wake up at the the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Um, was that twenty four forty eight hours later? Do you know? Do you know? i i
0: I felt it felt like it was obviously because i was asleep and then just (laughs) woke up felt like it was felt like it was 10 minutes later yeah yeah um um i i it wasn't it wasn't many hours later i think i woke up at like apparently like four o'clock the next morning um but i had no idea what time it is no concept of where i was what time it is what was going on for all i was aware i was in i was in afghanistan still on my way to an ambush so it was like you know because you because it just, it, you, I don't know whether the brain kind of like maybe compartmentalizes it while it's trying to deal with everything else that's going mm-hmm. on. I have no knowledge mm-hmm. of this, but I, that's only an assumption that when I'm unconscious, I don't know what's happening to the subconscious mind or what's going on in that, in that, at that level. Um, but yeah, when I woke up, I was like, it was like fight or flight because your body's in a huge amount of trauma and it doesn't, you don't, kind of understand even though the things i'm seeing don't correlate to what i think i should be experiencing so you know i'm awake one minute in afghanistan patrolling towards um an ambush ready to engage the, the enemy at any any second any minute next minute i've it doesn't matter how much time is in between that when i'm asleep but i've, I've come to and i'm in four surrounded by four white walls you know, machines beeping, lines everywhere, you know, and and when I came to, I was, like I remember, because I was dreaming that I was in Afghanistan and that I'd been blown up and that I had my helmet chin strap in my mouth and I was choking, but what was actually happening was I was pulling on the tubes that were either feeding or I don't know what, they. I think probably feeding up my nose into my stomach maybe and I was mm-hmm. pulling on this tube because, and then at that time it was coming up through my throat and I was choking mm. on that because I was pulling this tube out. So that's the moment I came round and it was, mm. it was, and I'm awaking from this dream where I think I'm been blown up and I think I'm choking on a helmet chin strap to actually being led in a hospital bed and just pulling on a tube through in my throat. Mm. So at that minute, it's kind of like, well, where am I? What's going on? And then it's fight or flight. You don't know what's happening. Mm. So it's, you're mm. kind of preparing for whatever. So yeah. that was that extremely traumatic period of time for me and for my parents, who were kind of sat there at the, up by the side of my bed. Oh. So wasn't great for them. Wasn't no, for them.
1: no. So how long were you on intensive care before you moved? you You stepped down.
0: Seven seven days. Okay. Ish, maybe mm. maybe a little bit less. Five to seven days. Mm. Five.
1: Seven Do you remember days. much of that time, or were you still in that? Fight, uh, flight, freeze.
0: Ah, oh, oh, it's, it's horrendous. Real horrendous. Mm. Really horrendous because it was like, ah, oh, it's just, it was, it's a very, I don't go back to that place very often because I don't really get asked about it too much. You know, I don't get asked about the intricacies, you know, all the intimate details of being in intensive care. So it's like, my memories of that are quite, I guess they're quite convoluted because it's, it's, you know, was I awake? Was I dreaming? Was I not? You know, because what, what, you're on so many medications going into mm-hmm. your system and mm. it's just so many lines and everything else and into every limb and you've got bandages and you can barely move. You're in so much pain. You know, one of the main things I can remember is getting my hair washed for the first time. Well it's lovely because the, the nurses are on 24-hour watch, right? So mm. uh, it must be on shift patterns and, and 24-hour watch. And I remember just coming to and you know, I was like, I just had all this dust and dirt all still in my hair and everything, you know, they cleaned yeah. me up as best as possible. But they obviously didn't want to wash my hair because they were dealing with other stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, any chance you can like, any chance you can just get this crap out of my hair, please. And like this this young nurse was washing my hair and I was like, that felt the most amazing like normality back, you know, to, to just feel kind of like warm water running through my hair. I was like, oh, this feels normal. And then it's like, you know, as things progressed, Throughout the days, I could sort of move my arm a little bit more. You know, I could sit up a bit more. I was sort of, you know, as the consultants and everyone was coming in, explaining the situation, explain what had happened. They were kind of, you know, I was gaining more information from them and building the picture for myself. Mm. But you still can't help sit there and think, oh, man, the guys are still out there doing, you know, doing the job that I loved and that I really wanted to be involved in. And for me, it was incredibly hard because as soon as you get injured, Especially in that way, you're just fucked out of that environment and pop straight into another one.
1: So, intensive being a patient on intensive care is, is a traumatic experience for, for 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 everyone. And you then you know you've had a a, a a pretty traumatic event leading you to intensive care. And I think it sounds like you had a fairly normal reaction to a fairly traumatic event. Was when did you start to to get that determination to just push through this and not let it beat you and not let it get the better of you? Was it at that stage, or did that come later, or did you already have it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I I already had it. You know, that was that was I I must have had it from you know must be it's, it's innate. I think in me. But um, it gets solidified in the military, especially in those infantry units because and and specifically the ones that have been on you know numerous operational tours before, so all that experience from the seniors in those units just carries through to the younger guys, the more junior guys that are coming in so yeah it it's it's just an amalgamation of of i guess like brute force and resilience and adapting to the situation so you know what whatever sort of happened to me it was kind of like this was going to be my new fight my new battle so if i couldn't do what i wanted to do you know as a soldier then i have to do this for my own recovery and i have to turn this into my own you know my own recovery journey my own fight and my own battle so all of my energy for a good number of years just was completely focused on on my recovery and regaining some independence, you know. So I spent, you know, the best part of this last decade just trying to rebuild my life again. Mm. Um, and that that just took that took a huge amount of work and a huge amount of focus. Mm. Like there was, there was there was literally nothing else going on in my life at that time because I was just like laser focused on on becoming the best version of this new version of me. So yeah it was it was it was always there but it was solidified in the military and then i guess i guess i kind of felt like i had to sort of build my own team around myself to then be able to progress because i i felt like i'd kind of lost my place in a team that i valued really highly um and i you know and coming to the realization the understanding that actually you're just a very small part in a big big machine and actually, you know, w- when that part gets broken, it can easily be replaced. So, mm. you know, and that and that and that takes a bit of working through. And you know, you, you... I did feel I think I felt a little bit abandoned. Not not necessarily by, you know, the military in themselves, because all the care and the support is there. It's just that I wanted to be still doing the job that I was doing and being a frontline infantry soldier and then being plucked away from that and out of that environment completely into into the medical environment just felt like it was like two completely opposite ends of the spectrum and it it took a bit of working through and it's a bit like you just felt a little bit a little bit like I'd let myself down and you kind I know it's being very harsh on myself but we were kind of in that position where we were you know very focused on the task and getting things done, and and if, if if something went wrong, then people had to be held responsible for it, you know, and you held just and you, and then you held yourself responsible because you took ownership of of things that went wrong, and that's how the teamwork kind of progressed, and that's how we built a solid team and how we did the things we did in Afghan. Um, so yeah, a very challenging period of time for me for sure.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's natural because your decision to leave the military or your decision to you know how you want to live your life has been taken from you hasn't it you've lost control Mm -hmm. of of that Mm -hmm. part of your life but you gain control somewhere else and that seems to be your your motivation to actually make something of of this to to push to push forward
0: it was about regaining the control that i lost and, and the independence that i lost um, and 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 I don't know. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's a difficult one to try and explain. Um, but it's it's, it's a, a hell of a journey to to try and pick that apart and try and understand that. But I think the point that I wanted to make was that I was by taking ownership of that. So actually saying, well, you know, I put myself in a position I picked up the search equipment I you know went on the search course I you know so you can track it all the way back and it's like then you can go all the way back to why you joined the military you can say well I wasn't conscripted you know I made all these decisions and all these decisions took me to this moment in time and yes maybe I got blown up or stood on an ID but I actually made the decision to stand in that place so it's all about You know, taking ownership of the situation, and that helped me a great deal to get through it. So it wasn't like I I steered wide uh, widely away from the victim sort of mentality of you know why did I get blown up you know why why did this happen to me why you know of course you ask those questions of yourself but I didn't ask the questions of the wider world I didn't say why did the Taliban put an ID in this place. Was well, pretty obvious why they put an ID in that place because it's a tactically sound decision to make. The enemy, from their perspective, are going to move up from this position,
1: yeah. put
0: some IDs there, yeah. or ambush them there. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. tactical decision. Yeah. And, and actually, I remember a quote from one of the senior guys that actually got. So he actually got blown up the morning that I got blown up, and we were actually acting as QRF to rescue him as as well. It, it, so prior to me getting blown up, so one of the platoon sergeants got involved in an ambush himself and he got a huge piece of shrapnel, went straight through his lower leg and out the other side. So we were involved in actually extracting him out of that in the morning. And then uh, later on, we went out on this job where I got blown up. So there was quite a bit going on. There's quite a few funny stories where I met him in hospital and he literally, he didn't know I got injured later on because he was obviously got there before me. Uh Uh, I'm going to swear now, but um, he, it, I, he came in into my room and he goes, What the fuck are you doing here? And I kinda of <laughs> looked at him and I said, Well what the fuck are you doing here? Because I totally forgot that he got blown up. So I ended up with two of us who had been in the same company, had been in two separate incidents that day, both got blown up, both got injured, and then we come together in the hospital and I was just, it was like shock, because we totally forgot that I forgot that he got blown up and he didn't oh, know man. I got blown up. Yeah, and he was yeah, like yeah. he was like, Oh man. He was like uh, you know, and we shared some good stories together and he actually said something to me that stuck with me over the years. He said, he said, listen, he said, you didn't kind of get injured via, you know, a freak accident. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't get involved in a car crash like some guys do. They go out and get drunk and they crash the car and they end up in heavy Court. He said, he said, listen, you, you're an infantry soldier. We're here in, in a unit. We're on the front line. We're doing stuff that we really want to do. He said, you're there, you stepped up, you wanted to do this, you were in that position, you were doing a good job. He said, you got injured by a well-placed tactical device. He said, there's no way you could really find that in that situation. There was no real way you were going to detect that, the speed we were moving, the job that we were on, everything that was happening. He said, the chance of you finding that ID slim. So he said, you know, give yourself a little bit of a break you know, you got caught out by a, a well-placed tactical device. He said it's not, you know, could have been a lot worse. And I said it's true, you know. So yeah. yeah, all these kind of things helped me out through the process, yeah. you know, yeah. because it takes it all away from you. Because you think, yeah, okay, you know, there was a guy here laying these IEDs, but he's thinking about how to lay them. He's thinking, you know, if I put it there, is he going to see it? Is he going to put it there? So you got to put yourself in both positions. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Um, but... Uh, this might be a little bit naughty of me to say as well but the guy that was laying the IDs later got got blown up by um, uh, Hellfire strike so
1: okay um,
0: so there was a little bit there was a little, <laughs> there was a little bit of closure there for me yeah um, so, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's quite it's, it's quite dark it's quite dark but I mean you know the guy the main guy that was laying IDs there then you know got taken out by an Apache um, of, of, of which happened. Sort of a few days before I got blown up, so this is this is a really strange kind of. It's really strange. It go, all goes full circle, but we were on QRF again, and this is a number of days before I got blown up, and we heard this like whoosh, like a RPG rocket pro grenade, and it went shh, and you heard this explosion. And we were like, what was that? What was that? And we had no idea. And it was almost like right next to our checkpoint. So we were like, right, stand two, stand two, you know, enemies coming, get get prepared to fight. Um, And all it was was an Apache had basically targeted this guy and just taken him out by hellfire. So we actually did the battle damage assessment on this guy that had been taken out by the Apache. So it's so strange to talk about this because a number of days later I got blown up by possibly one of his devices that he wow. laid. So wow. it was almost like it almost sort of went full circle. Mm. And I remember being on this on this patrol to to visit the area where this guy got taken out by the Apache, you know. And there's you know there's various different parts of you know clothing and etc and you know bits of this guy you could see where he'd been extracted out of the out of the area by by the enemy and um it's all just very surreal mm-hmm. you know there's like you know there's like bits of like American dollars that have been blown up on the floor and you know bits of clothing you know and we're taking all this this these kind of parts of this guy and putting them in in evidence bags and sending them off getting identified and such yes. and it's just like just a very surreal experience for that all to happen and you know and you kind of join like together yeah
1: yeah ah,
0: yeah Feels very like much like that mixed up and played backwards and forwards it's just, Wow. well yeah. yeah yeah wow
1: going back to you said taking ownership for this i i think that's uh i think uh, there's a lot to be said for for taking ownership and perhaps trying to move away from from feeling like a victim because i think that then if you you take ownership for something then that does push you on to to achieve things and let's let's talk about this now justin so following you on on uh, instagram i've seen you parachuting bungee jumping scuba diving mm-hmm. um doing uh, your your weights um your walking hill walking and now mountaineering and mountaineering seems to be the the bulk of what you're doing at the moment tell us about how that's come about and why mountaineering why the mountains
0: okay um i just i guess starting starting with all those activities you mentioned before I just wanted to kind of live life and i wanted to experience things i wanted to to be i wanted to still be able to access and do things and kind of prove to myself that yes maybe you're disabled maybe you don't have legs but you're going to find a way to do these things you know and that was that was that was for me it was about still regaining that independence but also by me doing these tasks and and going and doing these adventures and parachuting you know by my you know not not being attached to someone not doing tandems you know jump getting gaining my license and jumping myself and throwing myself out of planes and you know and free flying and stuff like that and and jumping in groups and it's just amazing really to be able to do that and have the support and people really keen to kind of like see you and go like just looking at you going like this isn't meant to be happening this like a person with no legs isn't meant to be walking to a plane with a parachute strapped to them and just throwing themselves out and enjoying it. Like, and you could just see people looking at me like lining up to do their first ever like tandem jump. And they'd just be like looking at you just, and you could read their thoughts and they're thinking, what the hell is going on with this person? Like, what is this guy up to? This is pretty incredible. So like, I kind of fed off of that and I was like, well, if I can do these things and it inspires other people then, and have fun at the same time, then do it you know and people see it and they get inspired they go wow you know this guy can do it why why can't I do it I'll find a way Mm. yeah and that was always the way that I wanted to operate I wanted to just have an idea work as hard as I could towards it and find a way to do it so Mm. and that led me you know to finally becoming more active and this only sort of happened after I had a number of surgeries to sort of tidy up my stumps a bit you know and and First, when I got injured, I had through knee, so knee disarticulation. And, and, um, and I guess for those that, that aren't medically orientated, that just meant I had the full length of my femurs. I didn't have anything below that, but I had my full femurs. So on the end of the femur is, is quite a large surface area, isn't it? It's almost like mm-hmm. a fist. So I could then weight bear on that area when I was using my prosthetics. So when I was walking around, that was great. But because of the shape of the end of the femur, mm. on the condyle sort of section on the sides of it, it there there were always areas where I was rubbing through the skin when I was wearing my prosthetics. So I had a number of surgeries over the last sort of six, seven, eight years to tidy them up, you know, open the stump up completely, shave some of the femur off, put it back together, hope that it would be enough shaved, shave the bone shaved off, that it would be comfortable put it back together, heal over a number of months, you know, between three and six months, then start walking again, then work out it wasn't quite right. And then go back again, more surgery, more surgery. And I had a handful of these surgeries until I got to the point where I was like, there's no more surgeries I can have that are really going to tidy these stumps up enough for me to walk around with comfort and do the things that I really aspire to do. I want to push myself and my body as hard as it will go and far as it will go. Um, and I want to utilize my legs to do that. I don't want to just use my arms to like, you know, rowing or cycling or whatever. I want to use my legs and and my prosthetics. So to do this, the only thing that was left, the option left for me was to cut the end of my femurs off. So, um, I decided that you know, it's just like a light bulb moment. It was like, you know, you spent the last six, seven years really struggling with all these minor surgeries and all those setbacks and all the recoveries. It was taking it out of me. So I was like, I've got to do something, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more drastic to try and tidy this up and sort this problem out. So a light bulb moment. It was like, why don't you just cut that end of the femur off? You know, there are people with above knee amputations and they get on really well. Why don't you just get rid of it? And uh, that from that moment, I was like, that's a really good idea you know and 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 then it was like so I went in to see my surgeon and and she Alex Crick she was like she's very well respected a plastic surgeon in Salisbury an extremely experienced amazing amazing woman um so calm so collected so experienced and just a fantastic person um popped in to see her messaged her, I was like, can I come in and see you like, when I a chat about some stuff, she said, yeah, come in arranged an appointment went in to see her and Mr and Mr. Dunn Rob Dunn, and they both just kind of sat there looking at me, and they both know me and they both know what I've been doing, like, running around parachuting, blah blah blah, they know I'm active <laughs> they've done all my other surgeries as well, and they were like, we know exactly what you want to do, you don't even have to tell us, really we know, what, we know the next stage for you I was like, yeah, cool, so I want to go above the knee will you do it for me, and they were like they were like, Phew, it's not really something that we would like to do we wouldn't this is not a normal kind of surgery this is not the normal pathway we would we would take because the the amputation and the stump that you have now is allowing you to be 95% more active than most amputees but my position was that I was actually being 5% active I had so much more to give you know I was living a day-to-day life but I wasn't able to run a marathon I wasn't able to climb a mountain I wasn't able to do this and that's what I was aspiring towards mm-hmm. so they were like you're, you're so active you're one of our most active patients that we know you're doing so well I'm like I'm not I'm not that's your perspective it's not mine yeah. it's not my position so they said all right we'll agree you know but the only way we're going to do it is if we do one at a time so and you have to prove to us that this one works and then you do the other one I said yeah that's cool let's do that I said, when can you do it? They said, well, when do you want it? I said, ASAP, let's go. So it, honestly, they said, right. They looked, Honestly, they pulled up the diary and it was just like, we got this appointment, this appointment, this appointment. I was like, let's have it. Let's just do it. Let's just get in. My decision is made. My mind's made up. Let's let's do it. So it came around to the point, do the surgery, do one leg, get rid of that one. Four inches I had taken off um, of the femur. Um, few days in hospital, left, left in a wheelchair, but they were, like, they were like, listen, you've got to promise us that you won't put your leg on the other leg and start hopping around on crutches. I was like, yeah, yeah of course, so I'm not going to do that. I'll just use my wheelchair all the time, be fine. They're like, okay, cool, no problem. So I leave hospital and like probably like two or three days I'm getting frustrated with the wheelchair. I can't access anywhere, I can't do anything. So I'm like, right, fine. I'll just whack my prosthetic on my good stump and I'll just go around on crutches. So I spent six months hopping around on one leg and a crutch until my stump healed and I could get a prosthetic back on that one. Then as soon as I got a prosthetic back on that one, the next appointment was booked and made to do the other leg. So it was this really fast turnaround to get both my legs done. And I had them done in about 18 months, you know, total and recovered, you know, so that 18, that was another 18 months essentially gone, but it was a huge investment for me yeah. because from that, bang, I was gone. And, yeah. you know, once I healed, I think it was like six months later after my, after the second leg had healed, I was stood on top of Mont Blanc. And, you know, that for me was just like, mind blowing, mind blowing. And I sent a picture to, to my surgeon and they were just like, this is incredible. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had to face a lot of kind of like, there was a few negative influences and people trying to dissuade me from from doing this. And I was like, you know, from your point of view, you have valid reason to try and steer me away from this. But from my point of view, I'm living with this. And I've lived with this for a number of years now. And this needs to change. This is not Mm. my life. It's not my direction Mm. that I'm I'm going in. It's not my purpose. Mm. So off they come. That gets done. You know, uh, you know, I had physios, I I had prosthetics professionals, I had, you know, other surgeons, other people wearing prosthetics telling me, mate, You know. This is risky. This is really risky. Mm. You're super active. You're, you're jumping out of planes. You're doing everything from the outside. You're doing everything that we would want you to do and that you, you should be doing. Um, and so I had to kind of like, you know, I had to kind of put that all to one side and just say these are the, their, their perspectives and not, I'm not mine. This is my 100% my decision. I have to take ownership for that again. So I did it, took ownership for it, and, you know, I, I proved to myself that it worked, you know. And I will I will say that no stump, no matter the shape, the size, the length, will be perfect. Mm. It will just be suitable for for it, its its designed purpose. And I designed these stumps to to have prosthetics that fit to them better than they did before. And that's what yeah. they do now. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm more active than I ever have been, you know, as a prosthetics user. And that's just because I made the decisions and took that huge risk to do that, you know. And 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 then from there it. It began with Mont Blanc and that was my first major challenge. Were
1: you hooked at that point?
0: I was I was hooked. I was hooked and I, I tell you it, it for me it acted as a huge like trauma release as well because all that all those years, all that pent up kind of like, you know, energies and and, and time spent just kind of sat recovering when all I wanted to do was go out and be active and do everything that I'd always wanted to do. As a child, I was always active, running about, playing football, climbing, making dens, all that stuff young boys do and girls do. And, and, and that kind of got removed, and I had to then go through this process of recovering until I got to a position where I was able to then walk down the street, go to the gym, go walk up a hill, climb a mountain, jump out of a plane, all this stuff. So... It's taken so much work, honestly. It's been my whole life since. Yeah,
1: you know? um,
0: yeah. But yeah, climbing Mont Blanc, it, it, it massive trauma release because it was like, you know, this wasn't even near the summit, but it I was above the clouds and the sun was rising. It was on summit day, I think, and and it was probably at four thousand, maybe four 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 thousand four hundred meters, maybe, and I just like I had a moment where I was by myself. And I had no control of, like, my emotions. I was just, like, tears were just streaming out of me. I was just bawling. I was just like, oh, my gosh. And there was no way I could stop it, no matter what happened. And it was almost like the last, I think it was seven years at that point, had come to this moment where it was like, you, you, you've you made it. You've done it. You've recovered. And now look where you are now. And it was just almost, it was a magic, a magical moment that I probably won't ever forget.
1: For yeah, me. yeah.
0: And at that moment, it was just like, phew, you got to do more of this. <laughs> you have got to do more of it. So yeah, that's where it began.
1: It's fascinating to watch, actually. And as I, I've said earlier, it's really inspiring. Just seeing how you adapt to the environment that you're in, and you have you've got your prosthetics, and then you there's there's different uses or like different terrains that you you have different use different legs for. Is mm. going as you as you're going as you're going up, and it's getting colder, it zaps battery life from your from your legs. Is that when you have to adapt, or is it the the terrain that that makes you adapt to whatever legs you're wearing?
0: Mm, it's a good question. It's uh, it's actually the terrain. It's a terrain. Um, there are so many different variables, devs, for this. It's like. Um, not one prosthetic for for every movement not one length of prosthetic for every type of movement not one kind of you there's not one shoe there's not one sh- so i guess we can use this analogy i suppose there's like you know there's not one shoe for every type of movement right so yeah running shoe like dress shoe dancing yeah, shoe, yeah. you know yeah, yeah. All those different types of shoes so it's exactly the same with prosthetics uh you know so you need different uh, piece of kit to do a different task and it really it, it's it's defined by gradient and also surface and, may, and altitude as well so you know if I'm walking on gravel and it's flat I'll wear my long legs you know my microprocessor knees and they'll be easy because you know easier to cover distance they're more of a natural movement um, I'm used to them it, it's it's just become normal life for me to wear these prosthetics but then when I'm doing stuff like weightlifting and I need to be closer to the ground I'll wear what's known as stubbies um but these ones I've designed myself so that they have like a rounded bottom rather than a flat bottom so I designed them with the help of some friends um in America and we kind of they helped me with the CAD drawing of them um and and then I 3D printed them at home um and yeah and then so they're made out of like a, a type of plastic printed on the printer um and designed exactly how i want for for lifting weights you know so most people that wear prosthetics want to be stable and secure they just want to have a flat bottom so they can stand and be and 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 not have to worry about using all this energy and core stability to actually maintain their position uh-huh. whereas for me I, i'm actually like well to improve my life in general, I need to be strong, I need to be fit, I need to be healthy. I need to be able to use my prosthetics and I need to be able to walk long distances just to just to integrate into normal life. I need to be able to walk on the street and just and just be a normal human being. Yeah. You know, so I need to be fit, I need to be strong, my prosthetics need to work with me and I need to work with them. So in order to do that, I need to be have a very strong core. So it's like, well, how am I gonna get a strong core? Well, instead of having prosthetics that make me stable I'll have prosthetics that make me unstable so I have to use my muscles in my body and everything to secure me in that position you know and that and that and that for me has been one of the, the main cornerstones of my progression it's actually doing the opposite to what most people do and it's just allowed me to progress within myself and have you know personal progression that's just the way I see it it's like how do I get better? Well, I need to do this and this. Okay, let's do it. And I do it. You know, so different prosthetics for different stuff. And then if I go in the mountains, you know, when I was in Nepal just recently, I was using my long uh, microprocessor knees, my everyday legs for you know the majority of the um, of the of the of the trek into the mountain. And then when I got sort of onto the snow and the ice, I changed the feet on them so they were like crampons on the bottom. And then I, well, as it got steeper, I took my long legs off and I put my shorter legs on so that I was closer to the ground and I could use ice axes and kind of be like on all fours. So then I'm using all of my back muscles. I'm using all of my chest, all of my core. I'm using a lot more muscle groups to help me move up the mountain rather than just relying on like my lower body, and my lower back to mm. use long legs, you know. Mm. So the terrain dictates it really. And, and and the surface and whether it's ice snow gravel whatever so yeah and, and i just have to make my own if i can't find them so that's what i that's do
1: amazing that you've 3d printed your
0: yeah your,
1: your prosthetics or the the feet that you need that yeah. that's that's yeah designed specifically for you because that's what you need at that moment that's amazing couldn't
0: find them. yeah i couldn't find them anywhere so i'm like well this is a stumbling block it's like how how, how do I get past this problem? You know, just this was during the lockdown that I kind of like had all my attention focused on this. So like I had a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of focus into this area. And out of that lockdown, produced these feet. And then from there, I still use them now. And they're, they're so durable. They'll, they'll last forever. So, you know, my, my, one of my goals for them is to get them, you know, maybe to get them to other people somehow this is one of my goals I'm not sure how mm. I can do that yet and and you know the intricacies around and the legalities of it but I'm going to try I'm going to try and get them to people that need them
1: yeah I don't doubt for a moment that you won't so
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> watch this space
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: so um tell me um uh let's just uh, have a quick chat about Peak then how did that come about and um how, how was that experience
0: Mirror Peak. Mira Peak came about as a natural progression, really, because um, I when I when I went to Mont Blanc did that, and then from there I did went to Kilimanjaro, did that, and then from there, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I can like attempt seven summits. Um, so this is this is another uh, well, one of my longer term goals. I'm hoping to progress in that. Um, but yeah, the. the Mirror Peak was kind of the next kind of step because it was like, well, you need to gain a bit more altitude experience. So, you know, go to a, an easy-ish mountain in the Himalayas and see how you get on. That's basically the thought process. Okay. And then it was like, you know, speaking to some of the guys, they were like, yeah, Mirror Peak is a trekking peak. You'll gain, you know, you'll be able to go up above six thousand meters. You'll be able to experience, you know, almost an expedition kind of vibe. Um, so that that was that's it was as simple as that, and that's where the trip was sort of born from. Um, and off, off we went, (laughs) off we went up to Mirror Peak.
1: That's amazing. Oh, do Mirror Peak. All right then. Funnily enough, he did it. (laughs) Ah,
0: I'll tell you what though. Like, I, I don't, I don't know whether to, I don't know whether to call the trip a success. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't actually, it's kind of like, it's, it's resting on the blade of a knife for me, Mirror Peak, that expedition, because it's like, you know, one side success, other side failure and it was like you know because I didn't we didn't quite make the summit I was like "Mm, you know not every summit is successful not every summit is a failure so it was like you know what am I perceiving as a failure here and it was kind of like because we got up to about 6,150 and making such I felt so strong I was I was moving fast I felt strong I was like I was really I was even surprised at my own progress on the mountain on summit night you know I moved up to a good altitude within like three hours I was like this is good going this is quick you know um and we got to a position not far from this not far from the summit a couple of hours from the summit and um the snow is just too deep for me so you know in this got to this area where you know moving up through previously the snow had been really nice and compact there was good layers there um, i wasn 't really punching through it it was really hard and i was I was making great time great ground felt really strong and all my energy that I was putting into my movements was actually being wasn 't being absorbed into the soft snow under my feet it was being transferred into forward momentum because it was, I was walking on ice basically but Then we got to this area where um, the 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 of snow layer w- w- on top of this softer sort of layer was became a little bit thinner so you know at times I was on top of it and at times I was hip deep in snow so for me it was so challenging trying to like you know at 6,000 meters of altitude I was trying to wrestle myself out of these kind of essentially swimming in snow you know as I alluded to earlier like when you know if you're able-bodied and you got your your knees you can just lift up your feet and place them on the next step up whereas for me it's kind of like You know, you're up to your hips. You've got to then lie. I've got to lie on my front. I've got to try and double ice axe, you know, arrest or pull myself out of this hole that I found myself in. Then you kind of fall through again. You put your weight on. So it became, you know, I spent about an hour in this position trying to find my way sideways, backwards, forwards, trying to find myself through this sort of this area of snow that was a bit too deep. Just couldn't do it just couldn't just mm. couldn't move through, and I was like, well, I'm burning so much energy here I'm at six above six thousand meters. I've had a good time, I don't want to become a casualty. Mm. I'll made a decision, and I'll turn around and I turned around and I went back down, and I was like, you know for me, that's a success, I think you mm. know, but because I didn't go to the summit, there's a little bit inside me that's like, <laughs> mm, you know I, I, I wanted it, but I guess you know i didn't want I didn't want to risk anything or risk the team or you know so yeah,
1: yeah that's really interesting and how how did you find Nepal um did you uh, I mean I've I've been um I popped up to Everest Base Camp a couple of years ago um it's not um not it's not easy for an able-bodied person but um <laughs> <No>. did you, <laughs> how did you find the Nepalese um uh, reception of you were you a, 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 right. an unusual entity for them to see, <laughs> are disabled people visible in in Nepal and Kathmandu and, and and where you were? Yeah, I've
0: got some interesting clips of footage on my phone when I went to, I think it was in, I think it was in Lukla, where we went up to kind of visit the school. That not really visit, but the school was there, and we were kind of like doing a little acclimatization, walked us up a little gain, a little bit of altitude, and um, there happened to be a school there on the side, and. It must have been like I don't know, fifty, sixty kids there, all from like I don't know, very young ages, like maybe three or four upwards, um, and they were just, they were just amazed. They were just amazed because I don't think they really see or have ever seen anything like that before. So they, they're all. It's interesting to see all the different reactions from the individual, you know, personalities, and you know, some of them are just like don't really notice it at all. They just see you more as a person. Mm. But others literally can't take their eyes off them, off your legs, and they're just like... You can just see their minds. They have no idea, really, what's going on. They're just trying to work it out. Yeah. Um, And in terms of uh, Kathmandu and, like, adults, I suppose, um, was it... People were interested, but... They yeah so i guess trying to think now people would kind of like come and speak to me about that but they were more interested i think to hear what i was doing
1: mm. not
0: necessarily about the legs mm. necessarily i think it was like there's always interest wherever i go
1: mm. so
0: it's kind of like you know before i got injured i I'd, I'd never seen anyone wearing prosthetics really or taken mm. any notice of it for sure mm. so you know, whenever I walk down the street, people will notice, or often I'll get people commenting or or talking to me. Or you know, um, when you go into places like Nepal in Kathmandu, it's it's so busy and so mm. kind of erratic at times. There doesn't seem to be any rules of the road, yeah, so yeah. people don't really notice. They don't really notice it. Yeah, really notice it because you're kind yeah. of in a crowd and you're just walking. And if yes. you're, if you're if you're good, if you're, I say, good on your prosthetic. If I'm good on uh, a good, uh enabled user of these legs, then then you blend in quite well mm. in, in a crowd. Like, right? but if you're if you're not so proficient on your prosthetics, you'll notice that there's something different about that individual because maybe their shoulders are moving in a different way when they're yeah. walking. They're, you know they're not very balanced. So. Your your eye will naturally pick up that individual as because they're moving differently from the normal, you know, from everyday people. Um, but if you if you're good, they they won't really notice that and you'll kind of blend in in the crowd. But when you do get spotted, people are like, oh my god, they're quite they're quite interested in, and intrigued by it, you know, yeah. and the technology because they don't have that in Nepal.
1: Yeah. So
0: they they yeah. kind of see you as a, a a little bit, you know. They'll ask you how much they are as a start. So they'll kind of be interested in how much they are, what they cost, and how do they get some. And you're like, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: you can have these if you want. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll just 3D print some and bring some over.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, that That is just um, fascinating. Everything that you've said today has been fascinating from, you know, the, the point of injury to, you know, what you remember at that time, waking up in QE Bit of rehab, and then your your current endeavors. What's next for you? What's next on the agenda?
0: So we were we were thinking about going and having a go at the Matterhorn. Um, whether <laughs> it's been it's been it's been done already by by a friend of mine, Neil Heritage, who's, who's also an amputee in a similar position. So he he recently did it. I think he did it a year ago now, maybe a little bit a little bit longer. So. Um, first he was the first guy to get up there as a double amputee above the knee which is quite incredible um so I'd be interested to go and have a little go at that and Mm. just just see see what happens there um but again I need to I need to make my prosthetics for that I haven't I haven't I haven't got around to making the specific feet that I need for that okay so if I can get myself in good physical you know preparedness and and feel like I'm in good condition with good strength and everything else, and I get my prosthetics in order. There's no reason why I couldn't ever go at it. Mm. That's the that's the that's a loose plan.
1: Loose plan. Okay, uh, I'll look out for that then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, with um, just find out um three things from you if that's okay um what was the last book you read
0: oh last 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 book i read last book i read was um i think it's carl jung's the interpretation of dreams
1: oh yeah that's
0: interesting i found it in my garage i found (laughs) it in my garage but I found it in my garage that I, that that I kind of so I've moved a number of times over the years. Now I'd either be, I'd either been given this book by someone many years ago, or I'd picked it up from somewhere. But I remember having it years ago, and I'd moved a number of, to a number of houses, and then it just I just found it in a bag, and I was like, ah, oh. you know, when I was looking through other stuff or looking for something else, I just it just popped out. I was like, ah, cool. So I started reading that.
1: Worth a read or not? Oh, uh, I think it's worth. Well, I think it's. I think it's worth a
0: read for me. Yeah, because I just I have an interest in, you know, why, especially around my um, my injury. You know, the dream that I had prior to waking up. Mm. So I'm just trying to gain a bit of insight around that. Really. Mm.
1: Okay. What, uh, or name one of your favourite travel destinations.
0: Um, Does it have to be a country or can it be... Anywhere, travel destination, wherever
1: you, yeah, favourite place.
0: Do you know what? At, At the minute, because of its significance for me and the memories it holds, I would say it has to be my first mountain, which is Mont Blanc. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's not a bad. It's not. A, it's not a bad. It's not Magaluf, is it? <laughs>
0: oh my gosh! It wouldn't be that. I tell you. <laughs>
1: um. And name one of your top ten favorite movies.
0: Oh, this is this is this is not a great question for me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of movies. I don't, I don't sit down too much and watch too many.
1: Hmm. Um,
0: have you got another question?
1: Um, I haven't, but I will think of one now. Um, one of your top 10 favourite songs? My top 10
0: favourite songs. <laughs> oh, my top 10 favourite songs. Oh, there's so many to choose from.
1: I know it's a difficult question, isn't it?
0: That's a really hard question.
1: Yeah, I know it
0: is. I need to look. I need to look it up. Let me look it up. Let me
1: look up. Um. Or the last song on your playlist that you've just listened to recently. All right, let's have a look.
0: Light songs. Okay. lebanese blonde
1: i've heard of them
0: they're by is Thie- Thie- thievery Corporation. thievery
1: corporation yeah yeah okay that's all right that's quite good it's you've got right, good taste that? yeah that's all right i'll accept yeah. that that's fine Thank that's it. that's been accepted,
0: <laughs> accepted into um, the archives <laughs>
1: <laughs> so where can people find out more about you justin um We can put everything in the show notes, but, um, where, where can we find you
0: online? Uh, you can, you can find me at Justin Oliver Davis on Instagram. Uh, you can find me at justinoliverdavis.com and those really are the two main places.
1: Okay. Excellent. Well, um. I will continue to follow the uh, Instagram and uh, see what you're up to. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you today, uh, Justin. Thank you so much. Um, and um, hopefully we will catch up again fairly soon.
0: Absolutely, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks for your time. It's been excellent. Nice to chat to you.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like, and share. And
0: if you want to meet lots of other risk-taking, rule-bending, and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more.